Welcome to Life on Planet Earth with John Aiden Byrne. Uh, some groups have put the number of attacks on Catholic churches nationwide uh, since May at, at over 60. If you look at the timing of this, if you look at the number of these, if you look at the frequency of these and the, the increasing intensity of these, uh, I think it's hard to disconnect them from this mayhem again that's going on all throughout the country. Uh, I think suspicion obviously turns to these left-wing extremists. You know, the church uh, represents traditional morality. It represents support for the sanctity uh, of uh, human life. It represents, you know, traditional marriage. It, it represents biblical morality. It, it represents many of the things that these left-wing extremists despise. A voyage of discovery in an uncommon age of unparalleled scientific, economic, political, and social upheaval, life on planet Earth searches for the unvarnished truth, answers, solutions, and above all, hope for our existential crisis. Uh, the church itself needs to do more and needs to stand up and insist that the political class be held accountable. The, the, the church is imploding. It isn't just a crisis. I mean, it's it's an, an advanced state of collapse. That was C.J. Doyle from my interview coming up. He is the executive director of the Catholic Action League of Massachusetts, the high-profile and influential leader in New England and America of Catholic faith and tradition. CJ and his group have been tracking the major surge in attacks on Catholic churches in his diocese and around the nation. It is frightening. CJ says our liberties are at stake and he has lots more to say. From the sinister nature of these attacks to an accelerating crisis CJ Doyle sees in the Catholic Church Today, we'll even talk about possible infiltration of the church, the Catholic opposition to communism, socialism, and then ask, where does the Catholic church really stand in the defense of the worker, free enterprise, and the business community? And CJ Doyle has a stark warning. I'm your host, John Aidan Byrne. The people who persecute the church never start with a, uh, with, with a battering ram on the, on the front door of the, of the church. If, if you look at the communists in Eastern Europe in the 1940s, they go after Catholic schools, they go after Catholic hospitals, uh, they go after Catholic charities, and, and this is what, what's going on today. So I, it's not only going to get worse, but as the church weakens, our constitutional protections themselves are going to be in jeopardy. protect her home and family in a disaster, Karen was willing to wade through water, mud, and insurance paperwork. Yeah, I can do this. You go, Karen! By simply understanding and updating what her insurance covers and doesn't cover now, she'll be better prepared no matter when disaster strikes. Learn other simple ways to protect your home and family before a natural disaster at ready.gov. That's ready.gov. A message from FEMA and the Ad Council. Well, it's just grand to welcome you back. I'm your host, John Aidan Byrne, and my guest is C.J. Doyle, Executive Director of the Catholic Action League of Massachusetts. As I've already said, C.J. and his group have been tracking the ruthless attacks on Catholic Church property in America while the attacks get scant attention in the media elsewhere. CJ has some eye-opening statistics and insights 
our interview started with these attacks, and as sometimes happens when interviewing well-informed leaders, it took a few side turns as CJ weighed in on topics such as Catholic social doctrine and its proponents, including the New York-born late Irish statesman Eamon de Valera. CJ has lots more to say about an intense crisis today gripping the Catholic Church. First, we started with the latest attacks on Catholic Church properties across America. I'm your host, John Aidan Byrne. We've seen a number of attacks nationwide on Catholic churches. You don't want to jump to conclusions. You don't want to be reckless. You know, obviously, attention is starting to turn to these same cultural revolutionaries, these same you know, left-wing extremists that are committing mayhem against public monuments all over the country and that seem to be engaged in, in, a, in a campaign of culture side. And what we've seen throughout the country is a, a whole number of Catholic churches and Catholic religious monuments, Catholic iconography have been targets of arson and vandalism. Uh, churches have been burned. Uh, statues have been smashed or decapitated. Uh, we saw in, uh, in Florida, uh, somebody drove a, a minivan into, into the doors of a Catholic church and then um, got out having smashed open the doors with the van, then poured gasoline and set it on fire. We saw Mission San Gabriel, uh, which is one of the historic missions founded by St. Junipero Serra, uh, who has been the object of so many attacks and accusations and have seen so many of his statues uh, uh, toppled in by mobs in, in recent months. Uh, that uh, Mission San Gabriel was, was almost burned to the ground in a, uh, a case that is being investigated uh, uh, for arson uh, by the um, ATF, by the Federal U.S. Uh, Alcohol, Tobacco and Firearms Agency. Uh, we saw that the uh, church in, in New Haven, Connecticut, that was associated with Blessed Michael McGivney, the founder of the Knights of Columbus, uh, defaced with all sorts of satanic uh, graffiti. Uh, we statue with the Blessed Mother in Queens, New York, faced uh, with graffiti. We saw a, a statue uh, of our Lord decapitated in um, in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Another statue of what was uh, uh, decapitated in um, in Montana. A, a statue of our Lord was uh, again defaced. We've seen a number of attacks all around the country. We saw more than a dozen attacks early in July. Uh, some groups have put the number of attacks on Catholic churches nationwide uh, since May at, at over 60. So this is a very very disturbing trend. And and once again. I don't think uh, you can simply dismiss this as a collection of random incidents perpetrated in isolation by disturbed individuals or by alcohol-fueled teenagers. It seems to be, again, part of this campaign of, of culture side. We've also seen a, a, a great increase of them in, the, in these incidents in Massachusetts and in southern New England. We've had six such incidents of arson and vandalism of Catholic churches and statues in Massachusetts. Uh, in 2020, five in just the last month, in um, uh, a statue of Our Lady uh, that was erected by uh, uh, war veterans after World War II at St. Peter's Parish in the Dorchester District of Boston, which is one of the oldest parishes in the city going back to uh, the beginning of the 1880s, that was set on fire. There were, there were plastic flowers in the hands of Our Lady. Now, if plastic flowers don't burn naturally, so somebody had to use an accelerant. The flowers were set on fire, and this burned the face, uh, the hands, and the upper torso of the statue. The very same overnight, that occurred on July 11th, Saturday night, July 11th, uh, 2020, during the very same overnight period, about a mile away at uh, the former St. Margaret's, now uh, St. Teresa of Calcutta Parish, at one of the busiest intersections in Boston, right at the, the corner of uh, Dorchester Avenue and Columbia Road, uh, someone walked onto the church property, emptied a garbage can, the contents of a garbage can, 
onto a church walkway and then place the, the garbage barrel over the head of a statue of Our Lady. And then four days later, on, uh, during the overnight period of, of uh, July 15th and July 16th, they did the same thing again. This was very disturbing. We've also seen uh, a case of uh, arson at uh, Sacred Heart Church in Weymouth, which is a suburb of uh, Boston on the South Shore. And uh, we had a case of actually two Molotov cocktails were thrown against the doors of the church. The exterior of the doors were burned. There was some interior melting. This, again, is not the act of, of some confused person or, or some drunken teenager. This is, I, I think, it, it, throwing Molotov cocktails is uh, not only a case of arson, but it's been very justly, reasonably described it as domestic terrorism. Thank God no damage was done. By the way, Sacred Heart Church was uh, virtually destroyed in a seven-alarm fire in, uh, in 2005, just 15 years ago. It took about four years to rebuild it. So he, here they're targeting a faith community that already that is still recovering from the, the shock and trauma and loss of a catastrophic fire, and they're trying to set the church on fire again. Uh, we also saw a, a granite statue of Our Lady of Lords stolen uh, from uh, Nazareth, the Nazareth Home for Boys in, in Leicester. That's, in, that's not in the Archdiocese of Boston, that's in the Diocese of Worcester. That, thank God, was recovered. We also learned during the interview uh, with uh, Father Sean Connor, who was the pastor of Sacred Heart, in Weymouth, he also made a reference to something that has not appeared in the media, that someone has been going to St. Margaret's in Dorchester and chaining the doors of the church on the outside. Now, this is very disturbing. This Is this an attempt to terrorize inside? What CJ had to say next may surprise you. I asked him, how has his Archdiocese of Boston responded to these attacks? The Archdiocese has basically gone silent in all of this. The, the response of the Archdiocese of Boston to all of these episodes has been, uh, has been inexplicably, unfathomably anemic, minimalist, evasive, inadequate, uh, noncommittal. Uh, at first, they said this was just the case of a troubled soul. Then they said they're monitoring the situation. And now they've progressed to the point where they said, well, we're working with the police and, and we're going to withhold comment. Uh, they're not putting any pressure at all on the public authorities. Reporters tell me um, one of the reasons they're coming to the Catholic Action League so much is because um, they can't get any response from the archdiocese. Reporters tell me that they're these is ducking interviews and, and, and not responding to requests for information. So I'm not sure what's going on here with the Archdiocese of Boston. Are they concerned that somehow uh, they're going to be seen as unprogressive or that they're going to uh, uh, play into the hands of, of President Trump by talking about uh, hate crimes against Catholics? I don't know. It's very, very uh, disturbing. Is it a case of no enemies to the left? Uh, is it a case that they're, uh, they're, they're, they're afraid of provoking future violence? I don't know. It's just, it's, um, it, it, it's a, again, it, quite inexplicable and unfathomable. Perhaps one thing uh, that crosses my mind is that they uh, are they afraid that it, putting any pressure on the public authorities it represents an implicit uh, criticism of their, of their friends and fundraising allies, Massachusetts Governor Charlie Baker and Boston Mayor Marty Walsh, who show up all the time for uh, Archdiocese and uh, uh, fundraising events, and they're thereby help them with the the major donor class. I don't know. Are they more concerned about a uh, a militant Catholic reaction than they are against uh, physical attacks on their own church? It isn't just a question of the public authorities have to do something. In the case of Massachusetts Governor uh, Charlie Baker and Attorney General Maura Healy and Boston Mayor Marty Walsh, but actually Walsh has been more 
condemnatory of these things that Kyle O'Malley has. Um, these incidents haven't gotten the same kind of national coverage that other incidents have gotten, which brings us to the timing of the attacks on the Catholic churches. Well, I, again, John, if you look at the timing of this, if you look at the, the number of these, if you look at the, uh, the, 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 uh, the frequency of these and the, and the increasing intensity of these, uh, I think it's hard to disconnect them this mayhem again that's going on all throughout the country. I mean, we've had a number of these cases before that did turn out to be, uh, again, uh, kind of alcohol-fueled teenagers or somebody with, with a mental illness. But again, given the, the, the number and the timing and again, the, the increasing frequency, uh, I think suspicion obviously turns to these left-wing extremists. You know, the church obviously uh, represents traditional morality. It represents support for the for the sanctity and uh, of, of uh, human life. It represents you know, traditional marriage. It, it represents biblical morality. It, it represents many of the things that these left-wing extremists despise. So we should not be surprised, actually, that uh, at a time when they're not only tearing down statues of Confederate generals, but statues of founding fathers, statues of Union generals, statues of American heroes, statues of, uh, of, of Catholic heroes like Christopher Columbus and St. Junipero Serra and, uh, and St. Louis, uh, we should not be surprised that they're also targeting Catholic churches. Again, you don't want to be reckless. You don't want to jump to conclusions. You don't want to assume evidence, assume facts that are not in evidence. But again, uh, the, the timing of this is very, very suspicious. And again, again the, uh, the increasing intensity of this. We had six such episodes in Massachusetts uh, since in 2020. We've had about 21 or 22, I think 22 now of these episodes since 2016. We've been tracking these for over a decade. The number of episodes in the last four years represents more than a 500% increase in the episodes, uh, in the number of incidents in the previous four years, from 2012 to 2016. Yeah, and, and Rhode Island also has become a hotspot, but we treat these, John, as the hate crimes that they are, and as the civil rights violations that they are, and as the constitutional rights violations that they are. Um, uh, the city, the Boston police are to be commended for looking at the arson of, uh, of St. The arson of the statue of St. Peter's as a civil rights violation, that, that's also a, a contrary to law. But we need to put pressure on the public authorities, on the, on the governor, on the mayor, on the district attorney, on the state attorney generals, the district attorneys of both Norfolk County, where Weymouth is, and of Suffolk County, where these other churches have been, and of Worcester County, where this um, Nazareth home in Leicester is, uh, to, uh, to devote law enforcement resources to this and to track down and identify and prosecute and convict and incarcerate uh, the, these, uh, these offenders. FBI hate crime statistics show that incidents in churches, synagogues, temples, and mosques increased 34.8% between 2014 and 2018, the last year for which FBI data is available for attacks on houses of worship. Any numbers or any data available on other houses of worship, have they escaped attacks hopefully they have but which would suggest that this is catholic churches are being targeted in, in this wave well i i haven't again uh, people are, are assembling data right now these incidents are happening almost on a daily basis we had uh, again about a dozen uh, episodes uh, just uh, between about july 11th and uh, and the 20th of july about over about a 10 year a 10 day period in july so people are still in the process of kind of assembling the data here. What we do in the Catholic Action League of Massachusetts is we assemble, we've been kind of tracking and recording and documenting and tabulating this data in Massachusetts. And we've been doing it since about 2012. You know, we're the only group in New England that does this, uh, John. 
And you think the Archdiocese of Boston, the Massachusetts Catholic Conference, the great Catholic University of Boston College, or uh, you know the Catholic Press, the Pilot, the oldest Catholic newspaper in America, would do these things, but for some reason they don't. Uh, the church itself needs to uh, needs to do more, needs to stand up and insist that the political class be held accountable, and that uh, and that the police be held accountable, uh, because this uh, this these these episodes are increasing, and uh, they're increasing not only in in Massachusetts and New England, but they're increasing nationwide. And as these mobs roam about the country, again, we should not be surprised. Uh, you know that uh, that they're they're attacking uh, that they they view Christopher Columbus as a perpetrator of genocide. They they uh, view Saint Junipero Serra as a uh, as somebody that 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 persecuted indigenous peoples. Uh, they view uh, Saint Louis as a as an anti-Semite and, and an Islamophobe. All these things. So it um, uh, you know th- these people want to destroy Western civilization, and the Catholic religion is what created Western civilization. Should be no surprise here to connect the dot and uh, and realize that the the church is going to become a target. CJ, you mentioned the attack on Our Lady Queen of Peace Catholic Church in Florida. I reached out to Father Patrick O'Doherty, who is the pastor in Okala at that parish, and uh, yeah, he was obviously extremely disturbed by the attack, and he has spoken out in the past and about this, but he's not giving interviews at the moment, subject to the permission of the diocese. The church seems to have gone silent on these incidents. Has any individual bishops or leaders broken away from the fold and said these attacks have to stop? I I haven't heard of any. There there may be a case, um, but uh, certainly not in this part of the country. Again, the uh, you know the media complains to us that they they can't get a response out of out of the Archdiocese of Boston. Um, you know, we, we don't know that we had one episode of the, in the Diocese of Worcester. I'm not aware that the Diocese of Worcester made any statement. Their the silence is in, in so many ways uh, inexplicable. It's unfathomable. Have there been similar periods in our history where attacks have occurred on Catholic Church and places of worship? What did that ultimately lead to and how did it all turn out in the end? Well, well of course, we had a number of attacks in the 19th century. Uh, from nativists and anti-Catholic bigots and and, uh, and Protestant fundamentalists, and of course in uh, Boston is one of those notorious examples. We had the burning of the of the Ursuline convent in Charlestown. It was actually uh, uh, probably it, it's now I think part of the separate city of Somerville, but in the, in, uh, in Charlestown they they burned an entire convent to the ground in 1834. We had a case that when um, uh, Archbishop Hughes was the Archbishop of New York, Dagger John, he was called, and they uh, they, they had burned a couple of Catholic churches in Philadelphia, and, and he, he made the famous remark that if uh, a single Catholic church is burned in New York, this, this city will look like Moscow in 1812. That's when the place was burned to the ground. And apparently no Catholic churches were then attacked after that. Uh, Archbishop Hughes may, might have been on to something, but w- w- what a contrast. you got to stand up to the mobs. Yeah, a- Absolutely. And instead, they're they're kind of maybe they're just afraid, you know. It, it, it's it's again, it's it's just um, it's unbelievable. People are being. Do you think some of the Catholic leaders have been intimidated by the mobs, been blackmailed, or told you take a stand on this? We're going to come back even harder on you. I don't know, John, but it, you know, the, what was the old saying is um, the uh, uh, that there is no greater fear than being seen as uh, as insufficiently progressive. The Catholic hierarchy clearly does does not like President Trump. Perhaps they feel if they speak out on a, on a law and order type of issue, this somehow plays into his real life. Catholic leaders don't like President Trump in America, the Catholic Church. Oh, they, they despise him. They never miss an opportunity to denounce his immigration policies. They never miss an opportunity to denounce his, uh, his, uh, his travel ban, his security policies. 
Um, here's the, you know, Trump, who is, um, you know, surely on pro-life, the Catholic Church is with Trump. If you look at so many Republican presidents in the past, they've been rhetorically pro-life, but they've delivered very little. Trump, who's never been rhetorically pro-life in the in the past, has now probably done more for the pro-life movement and the pro-life cause than any president since Roe versus Wade, including Ronald Reagan, by the way. And uh, and yet the the bishops seem just kind of relentlessly uh, hostile, particularly here in here in New England. So again, perhaps they're, they're afraid of that. Perhaps they're just being you know they're. they're their donor base tends to be uh, kind of the uh, the major donors, the corporations who uh, tend to be socially liberal. So that's one of the other reasons they don't speak out on, I think, on these issues. They want to enjoy uh, a kind of very friendly and fraternal relationship with political leaders, even if those political leaders like Governor Charlie Baker and uh, Massachusetts Attorney General Maura Healey and Boston Mayor Marty Walsher are stridently pro-abortion and, and pro-homosexual. People who are pro-family and pro-life and socially conservative have to realize is that if it wasn't for the, the pro-life issue, our bishops would be kind of conventional liberals. The, the issue of abortion and the, and the, the issue of the, the, the killing of, of you know, seven or 800,000 children now, it's down, it used to be 1.3 million children after Roe versus Wade, but about between 700 and 800,000 know, uh, you know, uh, medical and uh, surgical abortions. How many chemical abortions is a, is a number known only to God? Surgical and so-called medical abortions, uh, you know, I think is the only thing that keeps them from kind of openly, keeps the hierarchy from kind of openly endorsing uh, liberal Democrats. One Catholic bishop in the U.S. in recent days came out and said Trump is not pro-life. He only thinks about himself. He was using some kind of odd logic. Do you recall that? Yes, I think it was, it was a bishop in Kentucky who's notorious for being a pro-homosexual. So and this is the other problem, John. You know, how, how many of our, our, our priests and how many of our bishops are, are closeted homosexuals? This is, a, I, I think, a significant, uh, a significant part of it. They have an alternative sexual orientation, so-called. The older generation, I think, were brought up in the 1960s and were socialized and intellectually formed in the 1960s and marched for civil rights, as, as by the way, Cardinal O'Malley did with uh, supporting Martin Luther King. They, they tend to identify uh, really with the political left and even if they say something pro-life or pro-family, it's usually kind of very tepid and low-key and understated. We had the debate on same-sex marriage here in Massachusetts. Remember, Massachusetts led the way on same-sex so-called marriage with the Goodridge decision by the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court. And then there was a protection of marriage amendment uh, that was brought up. And Cardinal O'Malley issued a statement saying that um, uh, support for traditional marriage was neither bigoted nor sectarian. Well, as, as Archie Munker used to say, well, ain't that a kick in the head, you know? This was the strongest thing the Archbishop of Boston could come out with about uh, traditional marriage. I know when uh, in 2007, I spoke at the, uh, at the annual assembly on Boston Common from the Park and Bandstand at Boston Common for Massachusetts Citizens for Life. They were very kind enough to give me an invitation. I think Rita Russo then was the president. And Cardinal O'Malley got up afterwards and, and spoke. And his message to pro-lifers was, we must never be violent. No violence. No, no, never violence. Now, these are all, you know, uh, young people who are, uh, who, are, who are very pious Catholics and elderly people usually carrying their rosaries. So I don't know whether the cardinal thought were the, were the, old, were the, were the old lady is going to go out and try to strangle people with their rosaries or not. Their mindset of the hierarchy is just uh, seems to be formed by the left and formed by the, and formed by the secular media. They, they really, uh, you know, you, you wouldn't call them uh, conservatives politically. You, you certainly, uh, and again, the pro-life movement is kind of an embarrassment for them because it, it prevents them from their natural uh, disposition to be friendly with, uh, with, with all of these uh, left-wing political characters. Mayor Marty Walsh, who uh, said he wanted to turn Boston into a sanctuary city for abortion should Roe versus Wade be overturned, is regularly invited 
to um, the annual um, celebration of the priesthood dinner by Cattle O'Malley and gets up and speaks, and to various other Archdiocesan fundraisers. Society of St. James of the Apostle, who is, uh, whose president is Cattle O'Malley, gave him the Man of the Year Award. Meyer Walsh, the man of the and it was the same year, by the way, that NARAL Pro Choice Massachusetts gave him the Man of the Year Award. This is uh, again, they they have this uh, this disposition to uh, this instinct to uh, to support uh, politicians that are on the political left. These are the people that that are affirmed uh, politically by the archdiocese. But uh, I remember when I was growing up, we had a famous uh, Boston City Council. They despised James Michael Curley, who was a very loyal Catholic mayor and governor, and they gave the cold shoulder to. Uh, uh, U.S. House Speaker John McCormick, who was the uh, probably the highest uh, ranking uh, faithful Catholic ever to achieve high office in the United States and was strongly pro-life. They, they disliked the most Catholic and pro-life governor in Massachusetts history, uh, Governor Edward J. King, because he was supportive of the death penalty. So the, the hierarchy have not really been with us on our issue. Uh, you seem to be saying also that the Catholic Church is in a more weakened position morally. It's not speaking out on all the issues, including the attacks on Catholic churches. What stand should the faithful and the pews take in regards to the attacks on Catholic churches? And where are we going? In, in the last week, there hasn't been quite the number of incidents that there were in the, in the previous four weeks. But the overall trend is it's increasing. I think they can do three things. They can put pressure themselves on the public authorities. And when I say the public authorities, governors, mayors, police chiefs, state police chiefs, uh, district attorneys, state attorney generals, county attorneys and other, uh, once again, demanding that law enforcement resources uh, be deployed here and that uh, the churches be protected and, and people be not just uh, arrested for, uh, you know, uh, simple vandalism, but be arrested, uh, you know, for hate crime violations, for uh, civil rights violations and for constitutional rights violations. So that they should not only insist that the police track these people down, identify them and arrest them, but they should be prosecuted uh, for substantive crimes uh, that, that relate to um, trying to deprive people of the exercise of, of the free exercise of religion and the exercise of their constitutional rights, not not simple cases of uh, of arson or theft or, or, or vandalism. Uh, I think the other thing they have to do is they should put pressure on their own ecclesiastical leaders, on their bishops and archbishops, and demand that they speak out about this. And I think the third thing they can do is uh, just basically organize themselves. You know, we need to put up more security cameras, you know, monitoring uh, some of these churches where these statues have been targeted. Um, we live in a society where increasingly uh, the police seem to be withdrawing from law enforcement. Perhaps Catholics should uh, take it upon themselves to, to protect their own institutions. What element of this is pure anti-Catholicism and what element of it stems from all the scandals we've had over the past few decades? And this is a sort of a manifestation of anger out there, as well as all the riots that occurred in July following George Floyd and Black Lives Matter. Well, again, John, as society is being secularized, as society is being dechristianized, we've seen a number of these incidents. But I think you have to bear in mind that, you know, the sexual abuse issue in the church really peaked 18 years ago uh, right here in New England. So it, it's been a long time since uh, this issue was, uh, it's still on the front burner in many cases, but uh, it's it's been, it, this has gradually receded over the last 18 years. I, I think it would, you'd be hard pressed to indicate this sudden upsurge, which has occurred since the uh, George Floyd incident and since the uh, all these riots around the city to to attribute them to sexual abuse. I, I think it's it's more of a case of the people that are committing this mayhem against public monuments are left-wing extremists. 
they're cultural, they're political revolutionaries and cultural revolutionaries. And obviously that they view the Catholic Church as a target. I think that's the, the I think the, the more likely explanation. Uh, but at the same time, you know, the, the, the church has been uh, discredited in so many cases in the public forum uh, by by tolerating these um, uh, all of this sexual abuse. And obviously that that doesn't help. Your comments about the uh, hierarchy's relationship with President Trump. Many people would argue, including you, I'm sure, that he's been extremely friendly to the Catholic community in, in a lot of his policy making. Well, uh, Trump not only, again, has probably been the most effective, and again, this is the, uh, this is the irony of it. We've, we've had so many presidents who were rhetorically pro-life, and, and that's something Trump never was before he became president. But he's been more effective in actually delivering in terms of defunding uh, elements of, uh, of Planned Parenthood, in terms of uh, protecting uh, the conscience rights of, uh, of Catholic uh, doctors and nurses, in terms of you know supporting the, the pro-life movement and, and, and supporting uh, the religious freedom rights of the Catholic community, I think he's been uh, you know marvelously uh, uh, effective there. And, and uh, again, this is somebody that that you would you would never have identified as a social conservative or a pro-lifer prior to his election. Yet he's delivered more objectively uh, than any Republican president, and you know that includes Ronald Reagan. We, we saw four. We talked so much about the Supreme Court. Four of the seven justices. To the Supreme Court appointed by President Gerald Ford and President Ronald Reagan and President George H.W. Bush, Bush 41, four of those seven turned out to be supporters of Roe versus Wade. Uh, so the, the, the Republicans, again, uh, you know, appealed to pro-life Catholics and pro-life Americans for support, but never really delivered very well. And uh, here's Trump, who, again, uh, you, no one would have dreamed that he was pro-life, has really delivered. He's, you know, he, the, the, you know the Title IX, Title X issues. Uh, regarding, uh, you know, funding for Planned Parenthood. He's, you know, gone after uh, a hospital in Vermont that tried to force a Catholic nurse to participate uh, in abortion. He, there was a, that, that, that's a violation of federal law. We've seen the, uh, the issues regarding the Public Health Act of 1970, how uh, uh, that, that prevents uh, no, no money from that, that act is to be appropriated. It was the family fan planning provision. No money from that act was to be appropriated for the purposes of abortion. And Trump has actually been enforcing that. You might remember Reagan tried to enforce it and it was enjoined. And then it, it was uh, uh, George H.W. Bush. It, it was uh, again enjoined in the courts. And, and George W. Bush, I think, never made any effort at all in that department. So um, Trump is doing things that other Republican presidents have not done. And he's, he's doing them more vigorously and more effectively on both the pro-life side and the, uh, and the religious freedom side. And of course, I think, you know, his court appointments have generally been good, but there was some disappointment, I think, with the uh, Gorsuch on the uh, sex discrimination being applied uh, uh, and the U.S. Civil Rights Act 1964, the provision against sex discrimination, which clearly meant uh, not discriminating against uh, women, uh, being uh, applied to sexual orientation and so-called gender identity, which Gorsuch went along with the Bostock decision. Uh, otherwise, uh, you know, I think uh, Trump's judicial appointees and, uh, and Supreme Court appointees have been quite sound. Our, our clergy and our religious are, are uh, social climbing, culturally conforming, bourgeois. Certainly, the tradition here in, in Massachusetts has been uh, that um, uh, Catholics become uh, more socially liberal because they, they, they want to assimilate into the dominant uh, kind of uh, Anglo-Protestant culture. And uh, I think this has been going on for a very long time. You look at the controversy over Father Leonard Feeney in the 1940s. It was the Catholics of Harvard that, that lobbied uh, Cardinal Cushing to crack down on the followers of Father Feeney because they were making their life uncomfortable at uh, Harvard because he was criticizing Harvard University. Uh, so I, I think there's always been a kind of uh, assimilationist ethic 
and accommodationist tradition and, and, and kind of social climbing ambition, certain subservience to elite secular opinion that has afflicted the, uh, the, the Catholic population in, in America. According to John Gilmary Shea, the famous 19th century church historian, something like 4 million Catholics apostatized in the 19th century and became Protestants. We'll be back with our guest, C.J. Doyle of the Catholic Action League of Massachusetts. I'm your host, John Aidan Byrne. I asked what kind of family she wanted. She said, a family like yours. Learn more about adopting a teen at AdoptUSKids.org. You can't imagine the reward. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, AdoptUSKids, and the Ad Council. For the longest time, we've heard about a crisis in the Catholic Church. Scandals, declines, invocations, money matters, and more. I asked C.J. Doyle, do we now have a more intense crisis in the Catholic Church in light of much confusion and capped off with attacks on church properties with scant coverage in mainstream media? How odd that is. Oh, I think there's, a, there's an immense crisis. We've, we've seen, you know, two-fifths of all American Catholics have left the church. We, something like half of all American Hispanics are now Pentecostals or Evangelicals. Uh, we've lost here in Boston, we've lost uh, 80% of our parochial schools since the 1960s. All of the graphs, all of the all the lines and all of the graphs are going through the basement in terms of uh, you know the number of churches, the number of schools, uh, vocations, conversions. You know, we had 180,000 nuns in the, in America in the 1960s. We have less than 60,000 today. There might be actually 57,000. And the average age is 73. So many seminaries have been closed. We had 407 parishes in the Archdiocese of Boston in the 1960s. And now I think we have 135 so-called collaboratives, which, it, which means that there's basically one church open and two churches semi-closed and functioning as, as satellites. The church is imploding. It isn't just a crisis. I mean, it's it's an, an advanced state of collapse. It's a pretty explosive times we're in. Clearly, I mean, the post-conciliar period and the conciliar period itself have been uh, perhaps, the, you know, uh, Paul VI talked about the auto demolizione, the auto demolition of the church. Cardinal Ratzinger, the future Benedict XVI, said the same thing, the most profoundly negative time, I think he said, in the, in the modern history of the church. The liberalization of Catholicism with Vatican II and its aftermath has not only uh, failed, it's, uh, it's backfired uh, catastrophically. I would point out that traditionalist orders uh, are uh, actually growing, and, uh, and, the, and one area of growth is, um, is the congregations for the traditional Latin Mass. If you look at you know, our, our kind of preconciliar Catholic traditions, where they still exist, they're healthy and strong and increasing, but the, the, you know, the, that's, that's one or two percent of the church. The other 98% of it is just atrophying, and it's, it's, it's very frightening. And it's, as society is de-Christianized and secularized, it means you're going to have fewer people who are supportive of the First Amendment and the Free Exercise Clause. And you already see this uh, so many times. If you read, just read the comment section of any newspaper, they regard you know, the, the need for religious exemptions uh, in the case of uh, you know, the ministerial exemption for employment of churches. Uh, the fact that uh, Catholics or Christians, others should, Protestants should not be forced to uh, serve same-sex ceremonies, that Catholics should not be forced to subsidize, even Catholic nuns like the Little Sisters of the Poor should be forced to subsidize contraception. And you see this is completely rejected by the secular left and viewed as, as, viewed as bigotry and fundamentalism and, uh, and ignorance and hatred and homophobia and whatever. So uh, I think as society is, becomes more kind of Scandinavianized, uh, kind of uh, more, more secularized, 
um, like Scandinavia and or like the Netherlands, um, you, you're going to see less respect for religious freedom rights and for the rights of conscience. And of course, we have the ACLU trying to force Catholic hospitals to perform abortions. Uh, you actually have a project of the American Civil Liberties Union warning of the danger, the menace that Catholic hospitals represent. So they, they clearly want to close Catholic hospitals. They want to force Catholic schools to hire, you know, active practicing homosexuals. What the secular left intends is to have a kind of Soviet style of freedom of religion, which means freedom of worship on Sunday morning. In terms of the charitable and the educational and the medical social aspects of uh, Catholic institutions uh, and the Catholic religion, this is to be entirely uh, marginalized and uh, and eviscerated. The people who persecute the church never start with a uh, with, with a battering ram on the on the front door of the, of the church itself. They they they, they go after um, you know Catholic. If you look at the communists in East New York in the 1940s, they go after Catholic schools. They go after Catholic hospitals. Uh, they go after Catholic charities. And and this is what what's what's going on today. So I, it's not only going to get worse, but as the church weakens, our constitutional protections themselves are going to be in jeopardy. There have been stories written and speculation that the Catholic Church through the decades, recent decades, has been infiltrated by communist saboteurs. Do you subscribe to any of that? People who are more knowledgeable than I am of this uh, subscribe to it. You know, you remember Dietrich van Hildebrand, the famous Catholic philosopher and author, um, his wife was Alice von Hildebrand, and again, a great Catholic scholar. And I, I think she's deceased now, but but she uh, she met Bella Dodd, the woman who made this claim, and she said she thought she was credible. In Eastern Europe, you had the so-called peace priest organization, which was set up by Joseph Stalin, uh, basically to infiltrate the church and to uh, try to split the church. We see it today in China with the so-called patriotic Catholic church, uh, whereby you have a, a, you know a, a, an official church and then uh, that's loyal to the government and uh, kind of an underground church that's loyal to Rome, which sadly has, been, I think, been sold out by this recent uh, Vatican-China agreement. And of course, we also know that uh, even though the Russian Orthodox Church was always kind of very Erastian and Caesar or Papist, you actually had uh, people who were like KGB guys being put in positions in the uh, in the Russian Orthodox hierarchies. This goes back to a woman named Bella Dodd, who was a former communist, who claimed that um, Stalin deliberately tried to place uh, communists into American Catholic seminaries. If people who are more knowledgeable than I am uh, do find this find this credible. So we do know that communists try to infiltrate non-communist um, organizations. This is an old this is an old tactic. Now this is where my interview with C.J. Doyle, who is a font of information on Catholic faith and history, took another fascinating turn. We looked more closely at Catholic social teaching. That's a concept. It has been argued hijacked and perverted by the neo-pagan socialist left. Taught by successive popes, Catholic social principles formed the thinking and inspired the policies of such Catholic statemen as the New York-born Irish leader Eamon de Valera. I asked CJ for his reaction to critics who have suggested that some statements and actions in recent times by Catholic bishops and leaders smack of a kind of communism and socialism. Yes, I, I think obviously liberation theology was certainly Marxist-inspired and, and Marxist-sympathetic. Uh, That's something that Pope St. John Paul II uh, fought against. 
you obviously seen this ostpolitik inside the Vatican. Uh, you saw in, in the case of Vatican II itself, uh, in order to get observers from the Russian Orthodox Church, they had the, the Moscow-Rome agreement where Pope John XXIII uh, agreed that there would be no statement condemning communism, which was probably the greatest threat to the church, probably had perhaps had killed a U.S. House of Representatives study in 1959, uh, said that 10 million, 10 million Catholic believers in the 20th century had been murdered by communists. Yet the Vatican Council did not discuss this uh, because of the, um, the desire to have um, uh, uh, you know, state-controlled uh, Russian Orthodox prelates a as observers. Pope Pius XI you know, uh, condemned communism unequivocally, and uh, Pope Pius XII imposed an excommunication on uh, you know uh, the, the schismatic uh, you know Chinese patriotic Catholic Church, and it was the Vatican under Pius XII that encouraged Italians uh, with the support of the U.S. government to vote against it, saved saved communism, uh, encouraged Italians in the 1948 election to support the Christian Democrats and the great Catholic Prime Minister Alcide de Gasperi against the Communist Party. Of course, Cardinal Menzenti was a great martyr to communism. He was, uh, you know, he, he wasn't murdered by them, but he was, he was uh, kind of a dry martyr. He, uh, he, he suffered under them terribly. And Cardinal Stepanak probably was a martyr in the sense that he was not only in prison, but now we think he might have died uh, through poisoning from the communists. They murdered uh, thousands of Catholic priests and they imprisoned Catholic prelates and uh, tortured and brainwashed them. So communism has been the great enemy. They also, uh, one of the things communism did was it separated the Uniate churches from Rome in the case of the you know five million Ukrainian Eastern Rite Ukrainian Catholics, they they forcibly uh, folded them into the Ukrainian Orthodox Church. They forcibly folded uh, maybe two to three million uh, Uniate uh, Catholic Romanians into the Romanian Orthodox Church. Stole all their property. Is this what also ends the Catholic Church? Is it out of step with the rights of the ordinary Catholic workers? Perhaps. In recent times, I can think of a handful of church leaders who've stepped up for the rights of workers and free enterprise at the same time, from the late John Cardinal O'Connor to John Paul, our late great Pope and Saint. I mean, except he is so dead wrong, Bernie Sanders probably attracts many Catholics, unfortunately, who are looking for this kind of social doctrine message today and just can't find it. Well, certainly the church has always, uh, you know, been a, been a, a critical of, you know, capitalism is part of liberal ideology historically, and uh, the church has always been critical of capitalism. And of course, um, you know, in, I think it was in Quadragesimo Anno, his great encyclical, Pius XI, uh, talked about, uh, you know, uh, 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 capitalism was kind of the grandfather of communism because it was capitalism that begat socialism and socialism that begat communism. And it was the, the dehumanization of workers. Through capitalism that provoked this reaction in the form of uh, of uh, socialism and, and communism, and of course the Catholic uh, Church always supported the just wage. It always supported the family wage. It always supported um, social justice uh, for workers, social charity. That the Church not only opposed atheistic communism as a as a malign ideology that would destroy freedom and deprive people of, of uh, private property, which the Church always believed was necessary for human dignity, and which attacked. Uh, the family and which, uh, you know, asserted the supremacy of the state, but it also, again, criticized the capitalist political system that turned people into uh, kind of economic units that had a, a kind of a similar, like communism and socialism, had an entirely materialist philosophy. Uh, and of course, the church traditionally supported things like distributism. It, it supported uh, uh, the principle of, of subsidiarity. 
which means they, that you know those institutions that are closest to the people in the case of government, municipal government, let us say, rather than uh, than uh, national government, should be the uh, the institutions that should address um, social problems. It always supported uh, again the rights of labor and rights supported the rights of collective bargaining. The way you laid it out there, CJ, should make it very attractive for folks who are looking to the Bernie Sanders type policies to defend their rights if they just realize that the Catholic Church has the full package here. The church, you know, it supports patriotism. It, it, it supports the rights of, uh, of labor. It, it supports the rights of the family. It supports uh, the rights of conscience. It supports uh, religious freedom. It supports um, natural law morality and biblical morality and traditional Christian morality. So if, if you are concerned about the, uh, the, the sanctity and dignity of innocent human life from conception to natural death, and if you're concerned about uh, uh, the integrity and the indissolubility of marriage, and if you're concerned about uh, natural law, you should support the church. But if you are also about the, uh, about the condition of the, uh, of the family, the condition of the worker, the ability of, of the worker to be treated justly, and, and not to be simply uh, dismissed as an economic. And that's what the Republicans have been doing. They've been kind of dismissing workers as statistics, where we, we see so much offshoring and so much uh, and so much outsourcing, where jobs are shipped overseas and you have, and, and by the way, this is the, the crazy thing about the church uh, supporting illegal immigration, because it was organized labor that always opposed illegal immigration because it would depress wages. Uh, illegal immigrants competing with American workers, it depresses wages, it, it reduces uh, it, it attacks the family wage. It attacks the whole notion of the just wage. So what the bishops are doing in, in supporting, in kind of opening the floodgates on illegal immigration is that they, they, they are reversing, they are, they are abandoning the traditional Catholic position. The rights of workers need to be protected and that a worker should have a, a just wage and a wage that he, he could support his family with. So this is really, I mean, the, the, the interest, the economic interests that are being served by illegal, illegal immigration are the interests of large corporations. Yeah, and, and this is what the Trump administration wants to do. They want to bring jobs back from offshore to the American towns and cities that have lost these jobs. Yeah, I, I don't want to say this. I'm, I'm, not, a, I'm not a Republican. I, I was, I was, I'm a former Democratic Award Committee secretary, and uh, I'm, a, I'm now unenrolled and I'm not a member of the Republican Party, so I don't want to say this recklessly, but you know, Trump's immigration policies are frankly more consistent with traditional Catholic social justice teachings than this this kind of lunacy being preached by the bishops where we simply have open borders. This is not Catholic. You know, St. Thomas Aquinas talked about the angelic doctor, the common doctor, St. Thomas Aquinas talked about it could take generations to assimilate an immigrant into a society and that the society had a, had a right to protect itself. I mean, it was uh, there seems to be no notion here in the bishops that Americans have the, have the right to defend their borders and to protect their culture and language and demography protect the, uh, the the rights of American workers and and the uh, the precedent that American workers should uh, that uh, who were born here. The church, you know, believes that private property is necessary uh, for dignity. It, Damon de Valera, the president of Ireland, in the Constitution of Erie, the Constitution of Ireland, 1937, famously said that uh, that the family as an institution is antecedent and superior to the state that has uh, inalienable and imprescriptible rights. So no Catholic can, can be a socialist because it, uh, it it puts the rights of the state over the rights of the family and over the rights of uh, of the church and over the rights of the individual. 
So, you know, Catholicism has always been anti-communist and anti-socialist, but at the same time, it's, it's recognized that, uh, that there are abuses in capitalism uh, that have to be corrected. And, you know, I think you can make the argument that it was the, the Irish Catholic political leadership here in America that kind of preserved um, the, uh, the free enterprise system and, and kind of saved capitalism. Even Joseph Stalin uh, admitted that Franklin Roosevelt, President Franklin Roosevelt, uh, prolonged capitalism by his reforms, but where did President Roosevelt get his reforms? Uh, the, those, the, the kind of things that Roosevelt implemented in terms of uh, restrictions on the number of hours men can work, like the 40-hour work week and so on, these came from men like James Michael Curley and Alfred E. Smith, political leaders, who implemented them on a state and, a, and on a municipal basis. It was very easy, John, to be a conservative today politically, but when my grandfather came from uh, Galway, Loch Ray, in 1906 to Boston. Uh, it wasn't a 40-hour work week. It was a 72-hour work week. You worked 12 hours a day, six days a week. And uh, you got to <clears> off and maybe Christmas and New Year's. You fell into bed exhausted in the evening. Yeah, exactly. And this is why you had so much alcoholism in, uh, that you didn't have in Ireland that you had in the urban working class. They were absolutely uh, exhausted from, the, uh, from this kind of wage slavery. Catholicism and the labor movement are inextricably tied together, historically at least, maybe not so much today. No, not at all today. The unions, unfortunately, have become supporters of abortion and sodomy. In the, uh, the earlier part of the 20th century, in the mid-20th century, uh, you know, the, the Catholic, it was, only, it was only tied to Catholicism, but they were also kind of Hibernianized. I mean, the, the leadership of the Catholic Church, the leadership of the Democratic Party, the leadership of organized labor were overwhelmingly, was overwhelmingly Irish-American, Irish-born in some cases. And, uh, and Catholic, and they civilized and they preserved the, uh, again, the capitalist system. Again, President Roosevelt's reforms of the New Deal came largely from the inspiration and the example of, of so many uh, Irish Catholic politicians. The late Eamon de Valera, the then Taoiseach, or Prime Minister of Ireland, on March 17, 1943, gave a famous radio speech that has been both ridiculed and highly praised. De Valera, born in New York, raised in Ireland, a revolutionary and statesman, was arguably a genius and ahead of his time. The speech has often been coined the Comely Maiden speech, and Dev said in part, the ideal Ireland that we would have, the Ireland that we dreamed of, would be the home of a people who valued material wealth only as a basis for right living, of a people satisfied with frugal comfort devoted their leisure to the things of the spirit, a land whose countryside would be bright with cosy homesteads, whose fields and villages would be joyous with the sounds of industry, with the romping of sturdy children, the contest of athletic youths and the laughter of happy maidens whose firesides would be forums for the wisdom of serene old age, the home, in short, of a people living the life that God desires that men should live. Well, I, I think much of the derision that is directed at De Valera today uh, from the media and from the elite classes in Ireland is quite self-serving because uh, you know the, the society that, that he presided over was, was, it was morally and, and materially in many ways so much better than the secularized, uh, you know, neo-pagan Ireland of today. Not only do uh, large corporations, multinationals, uh, you know, uh, uh, take advantage of the country economically, but but unduly influence 
of the political process in Ireland, and to which they also compromise its sovereignty, because we've all seen in some of these referenda on, on moral issues in Ireland, not only the, the role of uh, you know American contributors and uh, multinationals, but the role of the European Union, uh, the role of the United Nations, and the role of the British press and the British media. And of course, you know, one of the reasons pe- people think De-, De Valera was just being nostalgic uh, for supporting, uh, you know, the, the the revival and resurrection of the Irish language, but he actually was being quite practical. Uh, he he realized that uh, that Ireland was in was was unduly in- influenced uh, by the British press, and this is before the era of, of television. He felt that if Ireland became an Irish-speaking nation, it, it would kind of secede a bit from the Anglosphere and and not be so uh, subject to uh, to media manipulation by uh, a neighbor that has twenty times their population. So I mean, De Valera, I think, was was very far seeing. And does does anyone really think that the Ireland of today, where you have uh, you know thousands of children being killed in abortion, where you have uh, uh, the legalization of contraception and sodomy and uh, and, and so many other you know moral evils, uh, where, where you see uh, the repudiation of national heritage, the repudiation of the traditional faith, uh, does anyone think that's really better than the than the, the Ireland that De Valera presided over. And I would also add that uh, here, you know, this was a very uh, poor country, Ireland, when it gained its independence. Uh, but at a time in the mid-20th century, when Europe was wrought by uh, uh, extremist uh, groups and, uh, you know, totalitarian and authoritarian dictatorships and, and military dictatorships and vast political instability and terrorism and genocide, uh, you know, Ireland was an island of stability. I mean, even Winston Churchill in the 1950s, during his second premiership as, as British Prime Minister, admitted that it was a uh, Ireland was a peaceful, stable, uh, law-abiding society. So, I mean, the, the Ireland of De Valera, I think, should be should be admired and, and should be emulated. We started off uh, talking about attacks on Catholic churches in America. Let's go back to that and and wrap it up. What would your advice be to Catholic leaders today in terms of the attacks on the Catholic Church and on defending the Catholic Church. What do they need to do? Well, I mean, if, if you had an attack on another group, again, it would be treated as a hate crime. It would be something that would gain great media attention and, and the people involved would be prosecuted. So again, you have to speak out and, and you, you want equal, you know, America is founded on, on equal justice under law. You just simply want, you don't want any special privileges. You don't want any preferences. You, you want the same equal justice that, that, that's afforded to others. And again, speak out about this and demand that the political class and that the, the leaders of law enforcement uh, go after these people, you know, uh, identify them, uh, arrest them, prosecute them, and incarcerate them. And we have to stop, you know, the, again, the Archdiocese of Boston is talking about, oh, it's a, it's a case of a troubled soul. Oh, my God, if if this troubled soul that threw a mo- two Molotov cocktails at Sacred Heart in Weymouth could have burned down the church, done hundreds of millions of dollars worth of damage, if you if you don't speak out about this and these things continue, you know, God forbid, but there's going to be either major property damage uh, or there's going to be uh, injury or perhaps even the loss of life. Demand these these crimes be investigated and, and the perpetrators be identified and, and put in prison. Well, before we close, C.J. Doyle of the Catholic Action League of Massachusetts has the last word. I'm your host, John Aidan Byrne. John, thank you. And if people want to get in touch with us, uh, you can uh, go to our website, which is www.catholicactionleague.org, catholicactionleague.org. Or they can uh, contact us by Gmail. It's catholicactionleague at gmail.com. That's catholicactionleague at gmail.com. 
And uh, we're the only group right now, really in New England at least, that's actually possibly nationwide, that's actually, again, tracking and documenting and keeping tabs on these uh, and speaking out about these attacks on Catholic churches and, and calling them what they are, hate crimes, and demanding that the people who, who perpetrate these things, the criminal offenders who perpetrate these things, be prosecuted and, and incarcerated. You've been listening to Life on Planet Earth with John Aiden Byrne. To reach the host or learn about advertising or sponsorship opportunities, call 973-664-9460 in the U.S. or email burndesk at gmail.com. That's 973-664-9460 in the U.S. or email burndesk at gmail.com. 973-664-9460 in the U.S. or email burndesk at gmail.com.